Hi everyone, Jacob Austin here, owner of QS.Zone, and welcome to episode 15 of the Subcontractors Blueprint, the show where subcontractors will learn how to ensure profitability, improve cash flow, and grow their business. Today's episode number 15, I want to talk to you about the tender process and submitting quotations. And whilst there are two stage tenders, they tend not to be that well used in subcontractor procurement. I have procured a couple of large subcontracts myself using that method, but it is limited only to a couple out of probably thousands of tenders that I've carried out and placed. And that has literally been limited to M&E packages where the job has just been too complex for it to be designed and developed in a quick process. So the bringing in of the subcontractor into part of the design team, if you like, at an earlier stage has been beneficial to de-risking the job going forward. But more often than not, in the procurement of subcontractors, it is the traditional single stage tender approach. Now having said that, a lot of contractors are requiring some sort of pre-qualification nowadays. And those requirements to do that are trickling down from the main contract because when the contractor is submitting their own tenders and their own pre-assessments, they're having to assure their clients that they're procuring subcontractors that are competent and capable. They've got health and safety policies, environmental policies, quality management, are able to deliver BIM, They don't employ slaves. And the list just goes on and grows every time somebody thinks of something new to add into the mix. And rather disappointingly, various of the main contractors have got their own little questionnaires added into these pre-qualifications. And frustratingly for the supply chain, the subcontractor's pricing, that means that you need a CHAS qualification for one contractor, you need construction line for another, you need Achilles, CQMS and so on and so on in this never-ending list of pre-qualifications and accreditations. There seemed to be some hope at one point that PAS 91 was going to do away with this, and this was developed by the British Standard Institute to provide a universally applicable system for assessing the competency and capability of suppliers. The grand idea being that one questionnaire would be filled out for multiple projects, for multiple contractors, making the pre-qualification process much simpler, easier and faster. Until some fuckwit decided that that wasn't enough. They wanted more information and added another hoop into the mix. So then the merry-go-round starts again. So then it's PAS 91 and then I want another questionnaire to tell us about your equality, diversity and inclusion policy and your corporate social responsibility policy. What the fuck has that got to do with building? What happened to just procuring the best contractor to do the work? Anyway, before I head down a rabbit hole that I don't really want to head down and start getting myself in trouble, we would better probably start talking about procurement and inquiries. I will just mention though that Build UK has developed a new common assessment standard and somewhat similar to PAS 91, This is supposed to be an all-embracing, one-stop-shop questionnaire that you can complete and then you've got the pick of about 30 contractors at the moment who are all committed to using it. So whether this remains to be effective or not remains to be seen, I suppose. It's fairly early days for this scheme. I guess the actual test for it will be whether it can move with the times. 
and wind in extra requirements on its annual refresh or whatnot. So when some client eventually decides that now they want all their contractors to fill out some ethical peace lily assessment as part of their pre-qualification that it can be added in and the thing updated so that it can just carry on being used instead of reverting to type and saying you've got to have Chaz and Dave but the premium elite version with the two red ticks and our special questionnaire at the end. So I genuinely hope that it's something that lasts and evolves and becomes a single source and it rolls out industry-wide and hopefully brings an end to however many thousands of pounds and time wasted filling out forms for this contractor, that contractor and their clients. But at the moment it just feels like more money to fork out. And another form. Now the intent with pre-qualification is that it's done, as the name suggests, pre-tender. The idea being that you only then get people to price for you who you know are going to be capable and are going to meet the standards required. But all too often you see that some contractors will send out their inquiries to whoever they want, whether they've got the relevant qualifications or not, and then it's all of a rush to get this thing filled out before an order can be placed or before a payment can be made. So it's worth asking the question, before you get too far down the road, am I going to have to fill out one of these accreditation forms i presume yes and you can decide whether you're willing to do it pay the fee spend the time answer the inevitable queries and if the timing of the thing's off this can all be against the backdrop of thousands of pounds being owed to you whilst the assessment's carried out so i say this as a word of warning to ask the question up front to save yourself the cash flow headache so let's assume you've passed your pqq you've been sent an inquiry and where do you start Well, for a start, what you actually get from them will start telling you a bit about the person that you're going to be working for. Ideally, what you want to see is you get a tender letter. It tells you about the main contract, what their conditions are. It tells you what you're going to be working under, as in your subcontract, the standard conditions and any amendments, the typical payment terms, the retentions, a scope showing what they need you to do, tender pricing document, There may be employer's information requirements if there's a BIM process being followed. Then your schedule of surveys, drawings and specifications along with the information itself. And ideally that will just contain the drawings and information relevant to your package. There might be a bit of other information in there for hopefully reference purposes only as in You wouldn't want to have an inquiry for any kind of trade without including an overall site plan, some basic GAs and elevations of the building that you're working on or buildings. But then ideally the information should be limited to the work that you're expected to carry out. And if you receive an inquiry and there's 10,000 drawings in there, and you're pricing ceramic tiling, but there's also foundations, external works, fencing, all manner of shit in there, You've either got a contractor that's got the potential to stitch you up at a later date, or you're working for somebody really fucking lazy, and they couldn't be bothered to work out what you needed to see to price the scope of work that they want from you. It is all too easy in the current day and age just to send a WeTransfer link or a 4Projects link or whatever with an absolute ton of information and some statement to say you're deemed to have read it all you're deemed to have understood the risks involved and you need to pick up the spec and what you need to do from that incredible list. And at times I've probably been guilty of doing that in terms of sending more information than was needed, but I would at least in the inquiry schedule 
list out the relevant drawings and say other drawings have been included for information purposes only. But that's going back to the CD era and a hard copy inquiry would go out the door when there was a standard CD of drawings. I could get the CD burner to whip up a batch of 300 of them and I could at least specify what I want you to look at and what your order is going to be based on on a drawing register and it made that process easy. But current drawing management systems make it really easy to put together a bespoke inquiry pack. So if you're not getting one of those, it is a bit of a red flag. And realistically, if you've got 300 drawings in, you don't have time to check every document. You're going to cut to the ones that you think are relevant. But in order to protect yourself in this situation, what you should be doing is when you submit your tender, you clearly note what drawings you've used to price the work. And if you've got a full drawing register or drawing manifest or whatnot from your contractor and they want that submitting as part of the bid, then strike out what is irrelevant. Just get a big fat pen and draw a big cross through it so that it just leaves the drawings that you need to have priced, the drawings that you're going to work from. So it's starting to trickle into the things that you need to provide when you submit your tender. If you went back to episode two of the podcast, when I spoke about the holy trinity of subcontracts, the same applies here as a bare minimum. You've got time, cost and scope that you absolutely need to define. So let's start by talking about the scope. Hopefully in your inquiry document, you've got a defined scope. You've got a set of drawings, which the scope is referred to. And you've got things such as policy documents, standard operating procedures, and a schedule of attendances. Now you are going to have to read the ones which are relevant to your trade. And it's some of the standard operating procedures, those types of documents, where some quite onerous little bits can be woven in that you miss out on. I've seen things such as all access being required via MUPES internally. And that essentially meant no ladders, no podiums, no aluminium access towers but millions of these little tiny moops littering the site and anyone that had to do any work whatsoever at height had to use one of these tiny moops, a one-man moop. And had you not read the health and safety document, you would be going into the job having not priced that element. So the person who sent you the inquiry should be telling you what they need you to price, which policies are going to apply to your trade so that you're not wading through thousands of documents and if they don't, don't be afraid to ask the question. And the same applies when you're going through the spec, when you're going through the drawings. If you haven't got a particularly helpful set of drawings or schedule that tells you which ones to look at, ask the question as to what you should base your price on. As you're submitting your tender, you need to be really clear as to which drawings you've referenced to generate your price. You need to include the drawing reference numbers and make sure that if there is a revision, you state the revision clearly. I mentioned schedule of attendances earlier and that usually has a list of things that you're going to provide and a list of things that the contractor is going to provide. And in essence, you need to make sure that your price allows for the bits that you've been asked to provide. And if it doesn't, when you get to submitting your quote, you need to clearly state which bits it doesn't provide for. So simple example, if you're asked to get rid of your own waste, some trades commonly are and some aren't. If you haven't priced it, you need to clearly exclude that on your quote. If there isn't a schedule of attendances within the inquiry document, then a good idea would be to state what you need the contractor to provide for you. So we're talking skips, storage, materials distribution, a laydown area, water, 
anything that you haven't priced in that you are going to need essentially to get the work done. And most of these things will be things that it makes sense for the contractor to provide, say a forklift to distribute materials. They've got multiple trays to ferry materials around. If they ask you to bring one in, it's costing them more money in the longer term. So they're things that are done for the right reasons. Some contractors like everything to be self-sufficient, so they might ask you to provide some of these things yourself. And the point I'm making here is clarify what you've included for. And the same clarification is required for the scope. If you don't provide everything or you don't intend to that you've been asked to price, then you need to clearly state it. And all we're trying to do here is to take away any ambiguity. You understand what you're pricing and you need to communicate that to the contractor so there's no mistake. They're not picking up your tender thinking it's 100% complete when you've only priced two thirds of the work. Of course, the same applies to spec. Sometimes specs can be loose and it can be a performance type specification. I want a product that achieves this U value for insulation. And then it's to you to sort of go away and find the product that works, if you like. Sometimes you get a proper MBS spec and it's really specific and it says, I want this particular brand of PIR board insulation and I want the joints to be sealed with foil tape and it needs to be so many millimeters thick. For whatever reason, if you decide to price an alternative product, then get it down on paper. Either amend the bill and do it so that you're crossing out the original product, you're highlighting what your changes are in red, so it's really clear and eye-catching, and state what you're including for clearly. Sometimes you have a situation where a particular product, it works in 90% of the same ways as the original product, but let's say picking on insulation again, the compressive strength of the product that you're putting forwards isn't quite as high as the compressive strength of the specified product. It might not be approved and your assumption that you can just put it in because it's almost the same might get you in trouble at a later date. If it isn't picked up during the tender process and you start installing that and 10 days down the line you've installed half of the product, somebody picks up that it isn't the one that they thought it should be, hopefully it wouldn't take that long, you might well be on the hook for replacing it all. So what I'm saying is avoid confusion, state it clearly now. And preferably, and this does take a little bit more work sometimes, you can price the compliant product and then offer a saving to go to whatever your other product is. Now I'm assuming that it'll be cheaper. You might be proposing something different for different reasons. So if it's more readily available, i.e. shorter lead-in period, another good reason to put something else forward, but just be clear about it from the start. There are some elements of scope which can be heavily linked to the program. Examples such as if you need to provide some heavy lifting equipment, cranes and the like, for particular items, you might assume that you can install them all in one hit make one use of a crane visit, then the program says something else. You might have to decamp from site and return. And if that involves mobilizing some heavy plant and equipment and so on, there might be quite a cost for that. So these things that are going to potentially cost you money, you need to state what you're doing about them. So you might state an assumption. I've allowed two contract lifts for a crane to complete X bit of work and further visits would be chargeable at this amount or I've priced to complete the work over two visits, and if you need further visits, the remobilization cost is X. By stating what these are, you're limiting your liability, and you're also giving the contractor some useful information to help vet his other tenders. 
He might think somebody else's price is particularly cheap, but then when he asks the question, they've only priced on one contract lift or one mobilization. And if you give them the information, they've got a nice easy plug-in sum that they can use in their analysis. And it might actually do you a favor. And of course, you might find that the program the contractor wants to deliver only allows you access to a quarter of what you would need to in one instance. And you've got a simple and easy benchmark to say, I need some more money from you because we couldn't achieve the number of lifts in my quote. And this is how much the extra ones are. That sort of leads into program. Unless you've got the facility to, submitting a program could be tricky and an exercise that is just too much to start undertaking just for a tender. But you will have an idea from what you've priced as to how long the various activities are going to take. Depending on what your trade is, whether you're internal, external, whether you mostly work alone or you've got a lot of interfaces with other trades, there's so much complexity that could go into a program that might involve your work, other work, and external factors and conditions like the weather. And more likely than not, the contractor has got a specific period that he wants you to complete the work in anyway. But depending on your trade, you might want to state the periods that you think the work would be executed in. You might want to comment on the contractor's program, particularly if you think it's tight, or if you've got concerns about overlapping trades in the same area. But as an absolute minimum, what you should state is that your price is based upon clear and uninterrupted access to your work and that a meeting should be held to discuss the program, to discuss the sequence of work, what you're going to get access to at any one time, and that you can agree resources and periods to complete the various bits of work at that meeting. That may well be the kind of thing that would wrap up well alongside a pre-start meeting, and then hopefully everybody starts on the same page. A final thought then on program, lead-in periods. If there is anything that you need to provide that has got a particularly long lead-in period, I would identify that as part of your submission. And again, you want to make that something that is part of the program discussion. Sometimes the contractor needs to hit a particular start date, but it may be that you can work with that. You can start doing something that hasn't got the long lead-in period and then come back to items that have at a later date. But state the facts and discuss it so that there's no confusion and you're not committing to something that you can't achieve. Finally then, price. If your contractor has provided a bill of quantities, obviously fill that out. If there's any obvious errors, you want to make those known at the time of tendering. You are obligated under the standard forms of contract to point them out. Now sometimes that can leave you with a bit of a conundrum because on the one hand, you want to submit a compliant bid, you want to price the items that are in the bill and you don't want to price in anything that isn't particularly stated because it might inflate your price, make you look less competitive and then you might lose the job to somebody else. But I would suggest the best way to approach it is you price the compliant bid, as in compliant with the bill of quantities, but then you state within your letter either what it is that isn't measured properly or what it is that isn't achievable. And then you include a price for what you need to do to get it done. It might not be as complex as that. It might be a pure spec problem. So the bill of quantities might say supply and install flush plywood door and then you price that, but then the drawing shows an expensive veneered product. I'm just picking a stupid example out of thin air. You don't want to come out uncompetitive, but at the same time, but you want to make clear that you're not getting the drawing or what's shown on the drawing for the price that you've put in the bill of quants. So if you haven't already asked questions about it during the tender stage and raised a clarification, then 
definitely make sure you write down the details on your tender submission. Some of this stuff happens by accident, it's just design development and things change, and some of it the contractor might be stuck with as their own problem because they've gone out, had their bills produced by some third party, and they've priced what's written and not what's on the drawing themselves. Stranger things have happened. The same should apply if you're pricing anything different to what's shown in the bills. So if you're putting forward a value engineering option, this might be a good way of getting yourself an edge when you're submitting your tender. Say, I can save you X amount of money by changing to this kind of product instead of the specified product. Ideally, you want to submit your compliant bid and then offer ballpark reductions to go to the alternative. Obviously, there's a lot more to pricing work than just the few items I'm picking out, but these are what I would see as minimum best practice items. Now, when you're putting your tender letter together, you want to summarize the price. If there's more than one bill of quantities that you've priced, this is a good place to draw them all together and make a summary submission or summary calculation rather, and then clearly state the price in numbers and words. Confirm whether it includes or excludes VAT. Preferably you want to exclude VAT, but then say that where it's applicable, it should be added at the current rate. State any discounts that you're willing to offer. If those are for prompt payment or early release of retention or a capped retention, clearly state what the discount is for and basically what the contractor needs to do to get his hands on that discount. State how long your price is fixed for. We have been enduring some bizarre fluctuations in materials in recent times and hopefully what we're seeing is these are starting to return to some degree of normality and the contractor may or may not want you to wind in certain amount of provision for increases in the future so that they've got the cost certainty it's going to cost me this much to complete the job they might not want you to because they might think well if the prices go up but they go back down again then they want to recoup some of the losses that they might be making on that. But a good place to start is knowing when the materials that you're pricing are likely to change in price. Some suppliers have quite clear price adjustment periods. Every six months or so, the price of X material will be reviewed and it'll either go up or down. And if you know what that period's going to be or when it ends, sometimes if it's quite close by, you might be able to approach your manufacturer, your supplier, whatever, and get a feel for how much it's going up by. There might be a pre-stated adjustment and you might be able to bake that into your base rates. But as a minimum, you want to know what the date is and you want to state that same date as the date your fixed price ends so that you're back to back you know you're buying for the price that you thought you were and you're limiting any loss that you might make on fluctuating costs. It might be that there's some negotiations around the fixed price and the contractor might want you to include for a longer period, the contract period and so on. But by at least putting a clear date in your tender submission, you can start having a discussion about what it'll take to fix your price for longer, whether it's worth the contractor taking the risk on it or you and the premium that you might want to charge for doing that. State how long your tender is valid for. So common periods might be 30 days, 90 days. Going back to the materials fixing, if you know that things are going to go up in another month's time, your quote might only be fixed for that month. Then you might need to re-review your rates. State what you've done, make it clear, then you can have a discussion about it. There may be some other items requested, such as performance bond, guarantees, or collateral warranties and the likes. State whether you've included for them. 
If you have had the warranty reviewed by your insurer, you could include that with your submission. It is sensible to do that so that you're starting off from the right position. If you haven't or you don't get chance, at least include a statement to say that the warranty wording needs to be discussed and agreed before they're entered into. Within your summary letter is a good place to include your day work rates. Some contractors ask for a schedule of day work rates to be included alongside the main body of the quote. Some don't mention it at all. But particularly if your kind of work is the work that has a lot of incidental items happen, it's good to set your stall out from the start. If there's a big schedule that perhaps you work to on various jobs, you might just be able to include that and say, my standard rates for day works are included. Failing that, you can state here, your all-in hourly rates, plus what your percentage additions would be for hired-in plant and materials. Sometimes the contractor might like to refer to a standard schedule such as the RICS schedule of dayworks. The common practice for those is that you specify a percentage addition to the RICS daywork rate. And that daywork rate is a prime cost for you to employ somebody basically on the minimum wage or on an enhanced rate for various levels of skilled operative. So it doesn't include anything for overheads or profit, management, travel and so on. So the idea is that you add a percentage to that base rate that accounts for those bits. And I see that that's commonly in the realm of 100, 110%. But if you're asked to price in that way, get yourself the information, see what the current rates are, see how that compares to what you need to recover, and tweak the percentage addition so that it's all aligned. The good thing about the RICS daywork rate is that if the prices go up, if minimum wages go up, there's a wage award, whatnot, the RICS picks that up, they revise the rate, and then you're entitled to charge that little bit more as time goes on to cover for inflation and so on. So you shouldn't really lose out by using that method. And what else should you include then in your tender letter? Terms and conditions. So if the contractor specified what terms they're going to work under, this is the place where you can say whether you accept them or not, and you can start having discussions about what you think is fair, what you think isn't fair. If there isn't anything specified, or you don't understand what the amendments are that are being put forward, a good idea here would be to state that you've priced on a standard building contract such as the JCT standard building subcontract in its unamended form or as a very minimum you should state that the terms need to be agreed. Design you need to clearly exclude this unless you've actually priced for design. If you are carrying out design you need to clearly state how long you need to design the bits of work that you're designing and include and include a clear period for how long the contractor has got to approve that design before you start manufacturing or before you start installing. Then very importantly, you need to make sure that you're not obligated anywhere in the contract to design to a fitness for purpose standard. There's no end of legal precedent on this. The key qualm with it is there is just no way to interpret or infer what the actual purpose is. And anywhere that is trying to include fitness for purpose is trying to include some elements of unforeseen liability, basically. So you want to be clear that your price is based on designing with the reasonable skill and care that would be expected of a professional designer. Okay, in an ideal world, you would do all of these things and 
I think that about covers the basics of what you need to do when you're submitting a tender. There will be the odd time where you're asked for a really quick price, a rushing, the contractor's chasing you for their submission, and you just don't have time for all of that writing. You must at least include a statement alongside your bill, alongside your price, to say that you hope that you've adequately captured the scope of works that they require, but there are a number of risks, commercially and contractually, that we need to discuss and agree before an order can be raised. A statement such as that should allow you to negotiate the conditions if the contractor finds your offer to be of interest. And that then concludes what I think are the basics when it comes to tendering. Hopefully you can get something useful out of that. If you've listened along and you know somebody else who might benefit from hearing the show, I'd be really grateful if you could share it with them and help me get my message out to more people. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you want to learn more, please do find us at www.qs.zone where you can subscribe to our training and support system for like-minded subcontractors. In there, you'll find templates, how-to videos, interviews, and much more. And it's less than the price of a cup of coffee per day. You can cancel any time. We're also on all of your favorite socials at qs.zone. Thanks again. I've been Jacob Austin, and you've been awesome. Awesome.